Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson. Hey, everyone. And I, I need and to Chuck restart. Moore and is our Chuck, guest today. Chuck Dr. Chuck Moore, Moore is, <laughs> is one of our lead, I forget yeah. your exact title, like one of our yeah. directors of Impact Christian Schools, which is mm-hmm. a multi-Christian school, mostly choice schools yeah. um, network that is like pretty new and expanding. Yeah. You want to say a little bit about your background in that? Sure. Hi, Urban. Um, so I have currently have got two roles. I'm the principal at High Point Christian School, and we're transitioning that. Uh, I'm the executive director at Impact Christian Schools. And uh, our mission is to find uh, opportunities for kids and and families to have um, a Christian school education option. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've been working with, fi- we're up to working with five schools in the Madison and Baraboo area and others to come and uh, about a thousand kids uh, as a general idea. So, um, yeah. And before that, you worked in choice schools in the Milwaukee-ish area. Yeah. In Wisconsin, there's an option to be in part of the Wisconsin Parental Choice Program or the Milwaukee or the Racine Parental Choice Program. And uh, private schools are participants in these programs. And I was part of the Lumen Schools Network in about seven schools in the Milwaukee Racine area and uh, at another private school before that, Eastbrook Academy. And in that area of the state, right, there's a pretty strong, strong emphasis on higher quality education for minority students. So I think sometimes people think Christian schools, they think a lot of white families or just a lot of church families wanting Christian focused educations. But like in the Milwaukee area, a lot of it was a lot of the schools were Christian, right? But they were like, but it was partly about higher quality education, more focused education for minorities. <coughs> and African-Americans. Yeah, probably different than here in Madison. Uh, uh, nationally, Milwaukee often uh, finds itself as ranked being the third worst school district academically. Who uh, are the two worst? Do you uh, know? Behind Milwaukee, next is Detroit. Okay. And then at the very top spot would be Washington, D.C. Oh, Washington, D.C. is so, like literally the bottom. And, and that you is know, so wild. And the numbers might be slightly different now, but when I was yeah. in Milwaukee, the uh, third grade reading proficiency rate for the Milwaukee public schools was about two and a half percent. And in that's, math, that's it was the number a of people more. who were on grade level. Those two and a half percent were on grade level in reading in, in third reading. grade in the Milwaukee yeah. school district. So wow. <clears throat> parents were looking for anything that worked. You know, it's funny. It's funny. It's kind of like you almost want to look at like a teacher in that system. And I know a lot of teachers are probably really great people, but you'd be like, listen, you're not allowed to grade papers anymore. Like until yeah. until your grade is higher than three percent. You just don't get to grade papers, yeah. you know, that's, it just, that just seems so wild before we can, I, can I like, cause I, cause I don't think I didn't introduce what we're doing. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce, I'm going to introduce this. I mean, we are in the middle of an education series where the first podcast we talked about government schooling, cause there's a lot of people, including myself, I'm having a kid in a couple months and some of our friends are having kids and we've been having conversations and talking about, well, how are we going to educate our kids? Cause I mean, from, uh, you know, after COVID, I think a lot of people, their eyes were open to what was going on in government schools and they want different options and things like that. And so mm-hmm. 
we talked about government schools in the last one. Now we're going to talk about private schooling. And then the next mm-hmm. podcast, we're going to talk about homeschooling. But you're unique because you are directly involved in a lot of in private schools. And you sent and you and your wife chose to homeschool your kids. And so that's I think it's going to just make this conversation a little bit more interesting. Yeah, and I think you have some history in public schooling, right? Yeah, I started out for a couple of years in public school. Uh, and the reason, one of the reasons we homeschooled was we couldn't afford the private school options that were in no. our area when we did that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, 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 I have something perhaps to add to the conversation. Yeah. So, so we, we one of the things we said in the last episodes was. We, uh, Milton Friedman in the 80s wrote a book called um, Free to Choose, and he explicitly said, one, education and schooling are not the same thing. That schooling is a way we educate kids, and we should not pretend it's the only way to educate people. It is not, right? And so, and then government schools, and then he said, we shouldn't refer to, quote, public schools as public schools. We should refer to them as government schools. The government is running a monopoly on education through schooling and controlling it, and we shouldn't pretend that because it's open to the public and the public is forced to go to it, that that makes the public schools because most what we call private schools are public schools. Anybody can come to High Point Christian School and say, hey, we, we'd like to enroll our child. In fact, because we receive vouchers, like we can't really say no. Yeah, that's funny, Nick. You, you kind of started like a little bit of a trend now after my friends and family and people that I know have listened <laughs> to our podcast, they, we, we're all trying to call it government schools, not public schools. So you yeah. start, because, yeah, you didn't start because the trend. Pri- yeah, private yeah. schools are public schools. The difference yeah, is the, right. the question is not who are they for? The question is who runs them, Yeah. right? The government runs what we normally call public schools. They are government schools and private entities are run by the public, are run, run by people in run the, schools that are open the to the public, mm-hmm. but the, it was, so we call them private. So, so for one set of schools, we call them by who runs them. And then the other set of schools, we call them by who goes to them. It's just a very confusing way of referring to schools. And there's a reason why we do it in that confusing way to make public schools sound better. That's why we do it. We want to give them the privilege. And so people say, well, the private schools, they're like all for profits and stuff. Well, some of them are business ventures. They're for profit. Many are parochial. They want to teach a very specific subset worldview. Some of them are just like charitable. They're just trying to school kids where the public school systems have completely failed, right? The government schools have failed. So like, like if you're in Washington, D.C. and you open a school, we don't know what that's for. Yeah. It could be because you're trying to make a profit. It could be because you're a religious school. Could, we don't know until we know more, more about the school. The beauty, the beauty is, is it's any private entity. Yes. It's any group of people who voluntarily come together to create a system of schooling whereby to bring about education. Which means you can't make any real general blanket statements about all private schools because there's so many different types of private schools. Mm-hmm. And, and, and other than that. Well, I mean, you can't even make a financial blanket statement because from state to state, the way that um, these schools are financially supported by the government or not is different. And And one of the big misnomers about what we call private schools is that they're like elite institutions. That, that if a kid goes to a private school, they're going to an elite institution and they're creaming is what people will often say in the public sector. They'll say, you know, they're taking all the best kids, like the kids who have like great parents and plenty of money and they're taking them and their money to these private schools and they don't want to be around the quote poor kids. And so, yeah, of course the private schools do be- do better because they just get kids that have more resources. Right. And that's true for a certain subset percentage of private schools. There are elite private schools in America. That's totally true. That is not the majority. Yeah. And that's not the schools we're talking about. Right here. So, you know, in that government schools category, the two biggest groupings are what are traditionally called public schools and charter schools. Both are run by the government. Uh, They're 
as as you were implying, Nick, they have different leadership and right. some different rules on how they proceed. And there's a different <clears throat> funding structure for them. The right. most money from the government per child goes to the public school. Right. The second most goes to charter school. And then the third most from in Wisconsin goes to private schools that participate in the choice program. Right, through, through what we, what's called, we call a voucher, right? Well, and, and to get, give you a sense of scale here, because I think that this is morally preposterous and nobody knows about this, right? Um, a couple of years ago, I looked at like how much money is actually levied per student. So this is like, this is like how much money is levied for their instruction, but also separate from that is a whole other system of financing, which is using government money to pay for these space space stations we call new school buildings. And if you if you put those together, um, what I found it like in the Madison area, if you put those together, it was about nineteen thousand dollars per student per year, nineteen thousand dollars per kid. And what and and so what do we get in vouchers, Chuck, per kid? Yeah, there's two different numbers. There's the K eight, and then there's the nine twelve, and. I don't have it memorized for this year exactly. It was about $8,300 for K-8. And it's about 9000 summed out $10. Mm-hmm. And this is part of the peace pact that was school. made in the voucher system, is that the public or government school still gets most of the money. I was going to ask. It, that it is levied for the kid they yeah. don't educate. Yeah. I was, so the other half of the $9,000 just goes right. to the public school system? Well, so the, the, money the, that, school? the money that comes to schools comes, as Nick said, from different quadrants. There's the state aid funding, and that's a particular amount that each school district gets. It's very complicated because it's based on the wealth of the school district. So Milwaukee and Beloit get some of the highest levels of state aid per child, and it's closer to 10,000. I haven't looked recently, but when I was in Milwaukee, it was about 10,000 for state aid for the Milwaukee public school student. And that has nothing to do with those levied in property taxes or anything. No, there's no... It's all in addition to that. So then, then the other set set of uh, money, another set of money that comes is the federal title programs mm-hmm. and IDEA money. So Individuals with Educational Disabilities Act. And so that money comes in as a separate category. So like if you're educating like two kids with severe autism, yeah. like you're needing aid and you're going to need like these other things. And there's a system by which money comes to schools for them. Yep. Yeah, and, then, and there is some accessibility in the voucher system for that. Yeah. Right. And then in Wisconsin, other states too, property taxes are levied based on the school district. Mm-hmm. There are some, when Governor Thompson was in, they put in some limits on how much you can levy, mm-hmm. uh, but they have allowed all along the ability to have a special ballot issue where you can vote uh, to have uh, money to build new school districts. Yeah. And so they can Set get around it. Right. From Separate from all those other monies. And right. like people in a community. So like in Sun Prairie, what they just did with the new Sun Prairie West High School right. here in Madison, they just voted for that. And they and got that. Not, that was yeah. a And that gets around from, the governmental limitations on how much we can charge people for property taxes. So it's it's a way in which you can charge even more. And so what happened? But and here's the thing. One really, final, one yeah, final. Sorry, because of COVID, there's been a bunch of extra federal money yeah. designed to at first make buildings usable for kids, and that, and now to help give kids support to fix the learning issues that were created by COVID. Yeah. So and that's a ton of money. Yeah. It's <laughs> and so it's important to recognize. So here, here's what's important to recognize is one of the reasons why privately run schools like ours can be disliked is because we never do worse academically 
than the government schools. And you get half and the we're, money. Yeah, we get less than half the money. That's why I feel like there's an argument that I've heard before that like the reason the public school systems aren't good. I mean, this it's is because right, you, people say all the time, we're underfunding our public we're schools. Funding the public schools. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I would love, I think that it would be interesting. There probably are studies about like public school versus right. private well, school. Well, and we, what we also know educationally is that the things we're spending this money on have absolutely no effect, bottom line, on children's educations. Like these space age, space station schools we're building with billion dollar workout facilities that has no impact on kids doing better at school we've we even found recently that like giving kids computers doesn't help them do better in school no, yeah we i broke my computer in high school i mean that yeah but there's this huge idea in people's minds yeah. that like if we get kids computers and oh if we got them tablets there was a ted talk not too long ago like if we can get them ai and if they can be an immersive alternate reality experiences this will make good little scientists out of them and there's just like that does not seem to be the case. I think it does the opposite. What matters is a competent instructor who is actually capable and in, in, in some ways gifted to teach. Because there were studies in the Los Angeles school districts that showed that like after three years of experience, experience didn't indicate better success with teachers, nor did master's degrees or accreditation. Like it, what it turns out is, is like your first three years of experience really do matter because you're kind of getting the hang of thing. You're getting your curriculum. You're learning about the school district. You're learning a bunch of things you have to learn. And then you kind of hit a cruising altitude and you're either good at it or you're not. Uh, one source, if you want to look up the funding, there's an organization in Wisconsin called School Choice Wisconsin. And their website has a link where with you can look on a map and click on your county and it'll tell you how much money is going to each of the school districts and stuff. It's very helpful. Um, one of the most salient educational studies in the 80s and the 90s was called the Tennessee Star Study. And they did uh, a look at, at trying to figure out what the best class size is for right. kids. Because there was a big move in the 90s to say we need smaller class sizes. These class sizes of 30, 32 kids, that's why kids aren't learning. And, and this study is the reason they did that. And um, they looked at three different groups of kids. They looked at a classroom of 25 that had one teacher. They looked at another classroom of 25 with a teacher and a teaching aide. And then they looked at a classroom with only 15 kids and one teacher. And then they tested them. They had several years. And then they did all kinds of uh, um, interviews with people. So they, uh, they got all kinds of data. And one of the things that's interesting is the, the kids in the smaller class size did better academically. And even the kids that were socioeconomically disadvantaged did even better than the students in the other classes that were socioeconomically disadvantaged. And the thing that really mattered to me in the study is when they had these long qualitative interviews and they tried to figure out what were the salient reasons, they interviewed the parents. And when you get all done with it, the parents said, in essence, uh, because there was one less knucklehead in the class, the kids learned better in the smaller class size. As an educator, that didn't really ring true to me. Well, they then interviewed the teachers. And when the teachers got all done saying what they said, their answer was the same as the parents, one less knucklehead. Well, this was done in kindergarten through third grade. It's really little kids. But by the time the study was done, they had grown a little bit. And they also interviewed the kids. And what the kids said was totally different than the parents or the teachers. The kids said, in the small class size, the teacher cared more about me. As an educator, that also doesn't ring true. But they perceived it because they had more attention. Mm -hmm. 
So that was why they you, you're saying it didn't ring true. Meaning, you don't think that the teacher actually had the emotional capacity to care more about each student, right. but right. they did have the time capacity to spend more time exactly. with the student, right. and, and that made the student feel like the the, right. the teacher. And that validated something that was really cool from the 1880s. There was an educational professor. Remember, in the 1880s and 90s, the big thing that was coming in was the telephone, and so all over America, all, all over America, they were putting up telephone poles, right? So this professor in a writing said that the ideal educational institute institution is a prof, uh, a motivated professor on one end of a telephone pole and an interested student on the other it was one-on-one -on -one education yeah. and and homeschooling is kind of thinking about that a little yeah. bit uh, the advantage of having individual attention from one student um, so anyway, those are just uh, thinking thoughts. My understanding with some of the people who are trying to do educational reform in places like like University, like Ian Rowe and some of those folks, is that they're, they, listening to them left me with the impression that some of that research has, like, hasn't replicated well and that they've backtracked on it. That like class size wasn't as big a thing as we thought in the late 90s and 2000s. Yeah, I think there is some... There, with every study, there's always a challenge of one kind or another. But what I've taken from that Tennessee Star study is that it does matter to the kids whether they think that the teacher cares about them. Yeah. And, um, you know, another when I when I grew up in education, uh, I had this block because people kept saying that the only way you can help kids of poverty to learn is providing everything that they need or should have had in a family. Yeah. The comprehensive them. ideology. The compre right? You know, you get all the, and, and they get all the scaffolding. If you get all the scaffolding necessary to create right. an imaginary family, you'd finally get the kid to be able to learn. And the kind of like the, the negative way of stating, stating that was kids of poverty can't learn. And that's yeah. just not true. And right. for me, my eyes were opened when I was at Eastbrook Academy in Milwaukee because 45% of the kids at that school came from the second low, the second poorest zip code in America. Mm -hmm. And yet they were performing at the highest academic proficiency in Madison, in Milwaukee. When, when the average MPS school was having a third grade reading uh, proficiency rate of two and a half percent, it was 98% at Eastbrook Academy. Wow. And I had to ask why, you know, what was it that made the difference? And it was, uh, they spent a lot of time teaching them to read. <laughs> they spent a lot of time teaching them to read. They spent a lot of time with high expectations. The teachers yeah. came in saying, these kids can learn. All kids right. can learn and yeah. we can help them. And we'll put in the extra work to make that possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there does seem like to, in, when talking about lower income communities and education in those communities, it feels like there's a, the conversation around that has just been hopeless. Like, like generally it's yeah. just like, you just hear hopelessness. And like, I know I grew up playing basketball and I played basketball with guys from um, very like low income areas and, and everything. And like, they're like really smart kids. And, and I think that the reason that some of them didn't do well in school was probably because they didn't have anybody who told them that they could do well in school because these guys were guys who could like, like, I mean, a lot of times you'll see you'll see in, in these low income areas, like a lot of the really great athletes come from the, those areas. And you have to ask yourself how, how that is, because it's not easy to remember an entire playbook and to be able to, like, calculate 
a game in like a, ba- a basketball game, like in the game, everything's moving quickly, being able to run plays, figuring out a defense, like leading your team in different ways. Those yeah. are all really difficult things. Yeah, basketball and they is could, an extremely complicated They sport could do that. At that level. Yeah, mm-hmm. they could do that there. But for some reason, when they went to school, they just all of a sudden couldn't learn about anything. I thought that was stupid. I always thought that was dumb. I thought it was dumb for myself. It's mm-hmm. like maybe there's a problem with how this the the school is teaching the kids rather than yeah. how th- that these kids are hopeless and they can't for some yeah, one, one of the great struggles I think of schooling has been for a long time that school schooling is one of the best ways to convey information to kids in a way that most destroys their interest in that information. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I, I will give some hope here though. Yeah. When I, when I went to the Lumen schools, there were at the time there were five and the proficiency rate for reading in those schools was just a little better than two and a half percent, maybe a three percent. In the Lumen schools? In the Lumen schools, when I when I and my team got there, there was a group of us that went, and there was a grant, and we were going to help the Lumen schools academic proficiency. And so I was there about five years, and uh, the most recent measurements of those schools are showing their reading proficiency rates in the 70s and 60 percent. So we you can make a difference when you do the right stuff academically. Yeah. So, you know, I've listened to some of your podcast. Yeah. And one of your big questions is what are you going to do? Yeah. And how are you going to make those decisions about what kind of education yeah. you'd like to have for your kids? Right. Uh-huh. Um, and so I don't know if I can add anything to that discussion as well. Well, I was going to ask, cause I think, I think one of the important things and one of the main things that we're probably going to try to talk about in this podcast is, is um, like the, what the teachers are teaching or like the philosophies before before we started recording this when we were talking a little bit about covid and like one of the things that happened during covid was that parents were able to listen into what their kids are being taught and Mm -hmm. and a lot of parents were like what is going on here now from my perspective that has been happening for a long time in the public schools and the parents just weren't there and nobody cared. Like all my entire childhood. And I everybody was, who was telling them, they thought that they were crackpot conservative yeah. crazy. No, they're not. They're doing not doing right. that. Yeah. Even, even and you'd be like, would, no, literally right. they're doing it. And they're like, no, there's no, no way they're doing right. it. And from a child's, from my, I was in high school saying like, this is happening. I'm being taught right. these things. And they're like, it wasn't that bad when I was a kid. And I was like, yeah, it's not it's 50 better. years it's, ago. Like yeah. things have changed in yeah. a lot of ways. And this is one of the ways that they change. So people got to hear these things being taught to their kids. And now you're seeing a mass exodus out of the government schools yeah. into homeschooling and private schooling. And my question for you is, what are they going to get? I mean, what, what, are, what are they going to get at private schools or, or public schools that they're not going to get that they're not going to get well, at I, government? I, I think it's important. I, OK, I want to say this. I, I don't I don't just want to pedantically correct you, but like I wouldn't say it's a mass exodus yet. I, I am hope I I am hopeful that that might happen at some point, but right now I think it's I don't I w- I'd say it's a little more than a trickle, but it's not a mass exodus yet. The dam has not broken. You can't because there aren't spaces available, right. even right. if it were. There's a little bit of there's so so you, if you imagine a dam and there's a little water trickling out of the bottom of it. And then the water rises and water starts to pour over the top of the dam. The dam's that's not broken. Where, that's where we're but at. The water's yeah. kind of starting to pour yeah. over the top. The dam can't really hold it anymore. Yeah. It but sounded, it's still there. Right. I think it's, we're kind of at that point. It sounded good, though, when I was saying it all together. Yeah. It all sounded Well, I think, I think what you're saying yeah. is, is that there deserves to be a mass exodus yeah, and people, from the government schools. There are more people now. And I now. think that's probably right. Yeah. But I think, it's, I think it's as much an issue of... I just think the whole idea of the government schools is just a bad idea. Yeah, I agree. I, agree. I think privatizing the whole system yeah. will create some 
some shakeups because Slash, you have all yeah. these enormous schools, but there's mm-hmm. no reason you can't have two or three privately mm-hmm. run schools in these big school buildings. Why you? I mean, I that feel could like all you, be the case. You could just slash the, the that eighteen thousand to nine thousand per student. Get rid of government schools and have all the have private schools pull in. Their enrollment will go up, which means yeah. that they're going to get nine thousand per student, which means they'll be able right. to. But there'll be much the more freedom, much more diversity yeah. of schooling options. Right. There'll be much. What, what it won't create is like a standard, an yeah. utterly standardized education. The education will be pretty standardized. People are going to learn to read and do yeah. math and that kind of stuff. But like, if you say, well, what's the diversity curriculum going to be? Well, it's going to be different at every school. Right. And you say, well, is it going to be a welcoming school? Can you be trans at like six years old? Well, schools are going to treat that differently. School. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, we're going to work. I mean, we're going to want non-bullying at every school. We're going to want to treat kids kindly at yeah. every school. But right. whether or not you tell kids they can pick their gender at six years old or whether you... Right. Well, That's you, the beauty. You can go pick a school. If you want your kid to have that option, you get to go pick a school that right. gives your kid that option. Or if, if you I want don't, a school that's just going to be like, oh, we'll wait and see if you feel that way. Right. Or just like, right. or a school that teaches that boys are boys yeah. and girls are girls. Right. And yeah, sometimes in very rare circumstances, people will have these feelings about their body. Yeah. But everybody has negative feelings about their body and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And right? that's why I feel, sorry, I, I'll, I'll ask you a question after this. Because, uh, this is what I feel about the, the public schools as far as the, the government schools as far as like these type of um, things that are being taught in them is that it feels like a lot of these ideas would in some ways go away if you were to privatize everything and it feels like the people who are holding on to some of these ideas like the transgender ideas right. and the gender ideology ideas like it's the government it's the government that's like holding right. on to those ideas well, and you, really it, pushing those it's because hard. you're totally changing your regulatory structure for the most part what you're doing is instead of saying right because like we don't we don't need a regulatory structure at High Point Christian School because if we do anything wrong, people just pull their kids out of school. Right, exactly. So like we essentially function as a business, but a business in the best possible sense. Our customers have to be really happy. Now that doesn't mean we literally pander to every customer. Like no business can do that. You have to have standards of what you're doing, just like our church. Like our church if people just leave, we don't have a church anymore. But I, that doesn't mean that I decide, I, I tell people what they, whatever they want to hear. There's this dynamic relationship between two. What that means is like, if you're in meetings with us, Chuck will be like, look, we got to change this thing right now. Or there's this teacher they're not, they're not doing well. We've tried to help them. We need to get a new teacher. We need to do that right now. Like we have to do that stuff. And, and if you don't, our schools close yeah. and that kind of regulatory pressure or that kind of like pressure of accountability just doesn't exist in government schools. And so the only accountability that could exist is bureaucratic accountability. The problem with that is, is it's not very good. It's not very helpful. It creates a lot of rules that don't really matter. It doesn't get rules off the books quickly enough that didn't seem to work well. And you have to hire a pile of people to do it. And guess what? You have to pay them more than you pay teachers. And before you know it, you're paying six figure salaries to these people in administrative positions and you're not pouring them into the classroom positions and getting the very, very best educators. And that's coming out of my pocket that's coming out of your right. pocket and, and it's extremely inefficient system yeah. to the american to the american yeah right. so okay so what are they going to get at private schools and obviously you're not going to speak for all private schools but what 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 are some things that if, I, if I'm a parent asking myself, where do I send my, my kid to school? What are they going to get at private that they're not, that, that government schools are not going to give them or vice versa? Well, one of the things that's uh, essential to a Christian school is who are the teachers mm-hmm. and who are the administrators and how do they choose to live their lives? So that's, that's one thing that's different. There are some fantastic Christian missionaries in the government schools. Mm-hmm. 
Praise God for them. There are also people that aren't in that same mode. But at our school, it's really important to us that we have people who uh, find Jesus to be their source. And that, that matters on a day-to-day -day basis. That may sound trite. It's, I'm just not talking about mathematics at the moment. But I think that's one of the very key things that we have to offer is who we are. That, that's really, that's what parents are purchasing when they come. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the Bible isn't full of seven chapters on how to do education. But one of the more salient passages is really important to uh, even Jewish people, their, their Shema, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. After they're told to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and their might, uh, then, then they're told and that you should teach these commandments to your children. And you should talk about them in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And, you know, it's it's giving the parent the responsibility of educating the children about their faith and educating the children about how they should live. Um, and ideally, I think if every family was able to educate their own kids in homeschooling, that would be the best. Now, not every family economically can do it. And not every parent feels equipped to teach, especially as the education uh, rises in grade level and becomes more complex. Uh, not everybody has that background to be able to do it really well. There are some people that are fabulous homeschool teachers, but not every family can do that. Yeah. So in our private Christian school, we offer an opportunity for parents, many of who both have to work, uh, to be able to have their child in an environment where uh, they feel really comfortable with the values and the morals that are part of who the people teaching are and who uh, and, the, and what the curriculum is that they're going to learn from. Um, interesting to note, listening to some of the earlier conversations, I do think there is a really solid role in education for uh, learning the basics at the beginning before you start figuring out uh, whether you think this works in the world for everything. Yeah. So uh, there's a there's a book that was really seminal back in the 80s and 90s by Dr. William Pollack. It was called Real Boys, and it gave such great references to the work they were doing at looking at the growth of the brain in a child all the way through adulthood. Yeah. And what they learned really clearly, it, MRIs made this possible before it, MRIs, they had to wait for a cadaver, you know, but as they measured the brain, uh, there were portions of the brain that children don't have in the early years. And they focus around cognitive decision-making and common sense. Those are the two biggest areas that grow. And they figure that the average female's brain finishes its growth in mass somewhere about between 20 and 21 years of age and the average male somewhere between 23 uh, 22 and 23 years of age my wife thinks 76 is the right number <laughs> so but the idea is that uh, as kids are going through different stages they can't always rationally comprehend whether this is a good decision to make at this point or not so in the beginning in uh, 
in our school, what we want kids to get are the basics. We want them to learn how to sound out words and how to memorize the sight words. You know, you can't sound out Jesus. It just doesn't work. You have to memorize that word. The, you can't sound it out. But cat, you can sound out. You know, so you have to learn that decoding process of reading. And everything depends on learning how to read. So if you don't teach them how to read. Now, if you start in a philosophical conversation with them in kindergarten about whether they should learn to read or not, and what kind of process should they learn, you could do that, but you're going to lose them. So we, we wrote teaching them some of this stuff. Uh, what are the mathematical tables they have to learn to add and subtract and multiply and divide? We want to make sure that in the early years, we teach grammar. That's what all of this falls underneath. Uh, so uh, you're, he's referring to the classical, like yeah. the grammar dialectic r rhetoric. So grammar is like everything that should be memorized and learned rotely. And that's and, and kids at early stages of the development are incredibly spongy in memorization, but they're really bad at reasoning. And so when you get this like this, like the democratization of education ideology where you're like, well, no, we need to teach kids how to think or we need to let them discover them. No, that's not really how they're. And, and it's like it's anti-biological. It's like it's not scientific. Like when they're sponges is when you should teach them math tables, sight words and language. Languages. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, listen, if they're going to learn Cantonese, that, I mean, like, that's the time to learn it. And, and yeah. think about the Bible too. Um, if you start, oh, I want to make one quick. So yeah. in Jay Grishamation's book, um, Christian liberalism, when he would think when he was really angry about the, I think it was in Kansas, how they decided not to teach kids from kindergarten to third grade Greek and Latin. Yeah. His, his response was that that was a terrible idea. And one of the reasons it was a terrible idea is once you get past those grades, they'll never really learn Greek and Latin well enough to speak it, to like to just read it without a dictionary, Be which is two, tells you two crazy things. One, they knew that in 1920, and that hasn't changed. And secondly, that's what education in America among educated people actually looked like. People learned Greek and Latin such that they could read Greek and Latin ancient texts without dictionaries. When you, when you like think about like what we're like, and that's partly because as we got away from the classical system, which happened like during the Dewey era and all, and, our, and all of that, which is about that time, 1920s and so on, we stopped treating kids like they were sponges and fed them like they were sponges in the quote grammar stage. Once they learn all that stuff, then you get to the dialectical stage. How does this all go together? And then you get ultimately to the rhetorical stage in classical learning, which is how do then we, you commu learn to communicate the stuff that you've. Yeah, and so, you know, you think about the Bible too. Oh. Uh, if if you, everything you do is try to reason whether the Bible's true and what your faith is at the early years, mm -hmm. they're going to be doing it without even knowing what the Bible stories are. Right. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in the early years just making sure that the kids know what the Bible stories are. We memorize scripture. We, we uh, have them understand understand uh, as much as we can uh, what the stories they're learning and hearing about mean. But, you know, there is a transition and middle school is that time. I We use middle schools fifth through eighth grade in our school. And we start seeing, I, I find it's important to have teachers that are subject matter subject matter experts more than generalists. And you want a generalist teaching 
early education. You know, the first grader, that teacher needs to teach math and reading and stuff like that. But if and and they all have been through college and they've all had calculus and stuff like that. But if you ask a first grade teacher to dive in and teach algebra, they're going to look at you kind of strangely because that's not their forte. But so in the middle school, you don't want somebody that's kind of going to the textbook every night to get one page ahead of the kids. You want somebody that's had a lot of advanced math and some experience in teaching middle school kids. So anyway, in middle school, we start having more uh, focused experts. Uh, the same science teacher teaches all the kids science and so mm -hmm. on. Um, but it's in that period of time where we start being able to have some of this reasoning thing that needs to go on. Yeah. They're starting to figure out who they are. And, and their, judgments, their judgment isn't very good, but they are able to are, start reasoning relative to judgments. They still need to be grounded in a family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and uh, I, I find it really interesting that in the um, Protestant denomination I grew up in, where they baptized infants and then asked them to confirm their faith, they waited till eighth grade to do that mm -hmm. because they wanted these kids to be able to at least have some understanding of what they were doing when they made that commitment. Mm -hmm. now, whether eighth grade is the right year or not, for me, it wasn't. I didn't get it then. I, it was college for me before I finally understood what my faith was about. Mm -hmm. But as kids, so my brain must have been very small when I was younger. But as but I, I, yeah. I imagine, I mean, I, I, part of this is, I, I imagine part of the reason why those areas of the human brain don't develop fully until then is because they literally can't. That like other neurological processes and other capacities have to be developed before you can develop capacities like judgment. And knowing when to say no, like these issues of self-control. And so those parts, we talk about those parts of the brain, quote, developing last, but we almost act as though that's like just neurological, like determinism, as opposed to the way the neurological centers of the brain must develop because they're developing in response to the development of our rationalization. Right. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I think that scripture is talking about, I think when God has an idea, we ought to pay a lot of attention to it. Right. And so the concept of the family being the key place where kids learn, uh, I, in our school, we want to emphasize that. We don't want to say to the parents, look, we're guardian ad litems. Mm -hmm. We've got it. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to do anything. You know, just add, add private school on top of your powder and we'll make you into a kid. No, we don't want that. We want the parents to be the ones that are reviewing their verses with them at home and going through their homework that they have and answering some of their questions and being involved in some of the reasoning in, in middle school. We want them involved in their church, uh, getting those concepts reinforced and re-reasoned also in a different context. We have 31 churches who send kids to our private Christian school. And I should mention this too. In private Christian schools, there are two modes. There are covenant schools and there are missional schools. And the covenant schools require the parents to commit in front, up front, that they are followers of a faith in order to get the kids in. And uh, High Point has always wanted to be different than that. Yeah. It's we've, we've wanted to be missional. So anybody's welcome, but we are going to be this way as we teach. Yeah. And we don't hide that from them on the way in the door. We tell them all about that. Mm -hmm. Here's who we are. Here's what we're going to teach. You're going to have Bible every day. You're going to have memorized scripture. You're going to pray before lunch. You're going to pray before tests. There'll be chapel. We're, there's going to be chapel a couple times. Uh, well, for you, at least once a week, we're going to have that. And all of that stuff is part of who we are. We're going to have a dress code, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, if you want to, if you want to put yourself under that, do it. And, uh, 
people are excited to do that. One of the interesting things I think that you talked about, and I think I mentioned in a previous podcast was that you kind of have to, there's like certain uh, like foundations that you have to set up and set these kids up for so that later on they can understand and reason through things. And, mm-hmm. and I, I read a book called speechless by Michael Knowles. And it was just about like, how, like it was about language and how we talk and political correctness and things like that. But one of the things he's, he argued and he's a conservative, but he argued to the Republicans. He said to them, like, you guys always are complaining about how the left is indoctrinating our kids. And he was like, part of like the definition of education is indoctrination. You are going to indoctrinate mm-hmm. your kids. That's not the problem. The problem is what are you going to indoctrinate them with? And, and then how is that going to help them later on understand the world? And I think that right. that, that was like eye opening for me because all I had ever heard growing up from like right wing people was like, they're just indoctrinating you and us. So the, anything that was mm-hmm. like, try, like that I felt like was indoctrination or controlling at all, I tried to reject, but, in, but, but I think like, kind of like what you're saying is you have to accept a certain amount of indoctrination and at, especially at the formative younger ages so that later on you can, you can, um, so later on those kids can can have the ability to reason through things and and develop, you know, so understanding when I was at Eastbrook Academy, it was a K-12 school. Yeah. And, uh, an example that I loved on how to help kids reason within a Christian school context was how they handled their unit on evolution and creationism that they did in ninth and 10th grade. And the professor, the teacher that we had there, I thought just did a fabulous job. He would spend the first week of their four week unit, I think first week of the unit, he would come dressed as he saw the pictures like Darwin. He would dress in his old clothes and he would spend the time explaining the very best, most up-to-date modern research about what evolution could mean. Mm-hmm. Stephen Jay Gould, all kinds of different things, not just Darwin, right? Mm-hmm. And he yeah. would have the kids then write a paper about that. Mm-hmm. The next week he would come in dressed as a Catholic priest with a collar and he would spend the time talking about intelligent design and he would give the very best stuff that he could have the kids learn about intelligent design and they'd have to write a paper. And then the third week he asked them to write a paper that compared and contrasted the two and they had to have at least five salient arguments in favor of each side and three opposition arguments for each side. Mm -hmm. And then they would do that. And then the fourth week, he had them have a debate. And the way the debate worked is you had to draw a name out of the thing out of the hat. And you would be told. So you couldn't pick your side. You couldn't pick your side. And you had to debate. And you'd find out as you were going up to debate, whether you were debating in favor of evolution or in favor of intelligent design. And then Mm -hmm. these two would have their debate. And the class would take, you know, notes and give points and award winners. I felt like those kids went to college secure in understanding what the options were. And by the way, if you went and sat in that guy's class, you were going to come out in favor of intelligent design or you'd probably die trying. But he would give you every option. So when they went to college, it just wasn't, oh my goodness, I've never heard about that evolution thing. And this sounds like a really rational argument. And yeah, yeah, hey, that, that, that goes. I'm on, I'm in favor. So they did a lot of things like that as Rick, as, as Nick was saying in the, um, 
rhetoric stage of school mm -hmm. uh, that you can do things like that. You can think, you can reason, yeah. but you can help your Christian students think and reason it all the way through to the end. Right. And part of it is like you, you hear people like wanting to be YouTube influencers on some of this stuff and they're trying to do this, this dialectic to rhetorical stuff. And they're so profoundly ignorant in the grammar stage. They just have no idea what they're talking about and they don't know what they don't know. And they don't know like, and so, um, they want to, you know, they want to be teachers, but I, the apostle Paul says it this way. They want to be teachers, but they have no idea what they so what they so constantly affirm or what they so like brazenly affirm. And like, that's always been a thing. I mean, the apostle Paul has 2000 years ago. He's like, look, there's going to be people who are going to like talk publicly and they're going to very consistently and strongly affirm things. And they have no idea what they're talking about. And so what we're trying to do is in the grammar stage, help kids learn like facts and doctrines and truths. And these are things they could deny later or confirm later. Right. And then they go into dialectical stage to start to figure out how they go together. And then they learn how to talk. About yeah. Them. I wish when you're talking about that, I, I wish that that's how we did things. And I, I'm like, I think Dar, uh, Darwinianism and evolution is insane. I think it's not true. I don't think I, I have big problems with it, but I always said like when I was in high school, I was like, I just wish that they just taught me both sides of this thing and let me figure out what I wanted to believe about. I'm not even, I don't have a problem with teachers teaching evolution, but I have a problem with them teaching a theory as a fact and as the only option because it, it, it did. I, I have friends and I don't, I don't think evolution is compatible with scripture in, in, in a lot of ways. And I have, it just is, I feel like it's created this muddy mess in the Christian church where we spend a ton of time trying, because we're so attached to the ideas that we learn in the government schools, we spend a lot of time trying to then attach those ideas to the Bible in ways that I think can be incompatible. And I don't know if that's a good way to think through things or reason through things. And the reason they're doing that is because they don't have another way of thinking about a certain topic like yeah. evolution and creation. I, yeah. I think that when evolution came out as a viable option, it gave people a way to deny God. And it's really hard to have people who have opted out of God in part because they think there's a different scientific explanation for things beyond creation to then argue fairly that that there is an option that's different than this. It's really hard to do that when you're using something to allow you to opt out of God. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go back in and teach as if there's another option because mm -hmm. you, you can't handle that mentally. Right. Yeah. I, Maybe yeah. I've got that wrong. You, one of the things I did yeah. notice was when I first got to Madison, there was a lot of when, when things were said publicly about schools like High Point, there was this sense that where people would say publicly, like these kids don't even know what evolution is when they come to school. And it turned out those people, again, had no idea what they were talking about, right? Like schools that hold either hold minority positions or that want our kids to understand minority positions have to teach the majority position and then teach the minority position in relationship to it. Otherwise you teach kids a minority position. They go out, learn the majority position, especially adolescents want to be accepted and they immediately accept the majority position, whether it's true or not. And Darwinism in particular is an extremely intuitive theory. So even if, even if it is false, which of course Darwinism is false, the question is whether or not evolution is false, right? And so the question is, is, is that whether or not evolution is true or false, it's a extremely scientifically intuitive theory. Anybody can understand it in its simplest form. And it bears the way of being under the authority structure of what we call science, right? And so because of that, it's basically inerrant scripture. 
Now, like if you're going to fiddle with that, you better be like dang stinking freaking good at it. Because what you're basically saying is you see that tree out there, that tree doesn't exist. Is what, That's how like the average secular person in a culture like ours is. And right now in the present moment, um, there isn't really a well-structured anti-evolutionary movement within Christianity, evangelical Christianity. It's, it's completely fallen apart. So a lot of the academic um, evangelicals are theistic evolutionists. There, um, when the, the Do- I think it was the Dover case legally said intelligent design could not be taught in any government school, which I think was a terrible judicial decision, but nevertheless, it was that movement basically came apart. And so there isn't a strong intelligent design movement today. There's a few people at the Institute in Seattle, Discovery Institute in Seattle, but not a lot. Right. And the creationist folks like they still have a pretty good like thing for people who are like really bought in. So like the creation museum and the arc like that they've built, like people who are really into like answers in Genesis. That's big for them, but I don't think they're getting the same, the same kind of like um, engagement as they were. And they're looking more and more obscurantist. And so, um, and like you, you may have known this in our podcast, one of the scholars that we had on the church podcast who did, who was defending young earth creationism when we actually invited him to come and have like an interlocution, like semi debate with another Christian who believed in evolution, even though he said on the podcast by himself, he would absolutely debate the person he refused when the moment came, which I found incredibly disappointing. We were, I was, I was willing to pay him, pick the date he wanted. He just wouldn't do it. And so like, he wouldn't say, he wouldn't actually say, and I, I felt like that was a real, a real loss because they, what young creationists, young earth creationists always argue is, um, yeah, you won't even talk to us because you think you're platforming us. But then in this situation, I was like, I'm ready to spend thousands of dollars to give you a platform. And he didn't take it. So I think he, anyway, the, the point is, is that like, right at this particular moment, um, there isn't like you as a Christian, you can say, I don't believe in evolution. And there, there are reasons to not believe in evolution that I think are reasonably viable, but like, there isn't an, a non-evolutionary like group of Christian thinkers are, right now yeah. that and, are academically viable that are public. And my, my point earlier wasn't to highlight intelligent design as the one and only way. It was to do, talk about a process that made sense for thinking. Right. We could have talked about global warming. We could have talked about some other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Nick mentioned earlier, I just wanted to touch on. Uh, This is my 37th year of education and in a lot of it in the private school world. And it's always been a dream of mine to have a larger scope of who we could serve than earlier in time. So, you know, asking a family to pay eight or eight to ten thousand dollars a year for education that they could get for free somewhere else has always limited in the right. past who could attend a private Christian school. Especially among demographics that tend to have more children. Right. right. Like conservative right. biblical people just tend to have more humans. Right. And so you you've got the families of three or four or five or more kids and like now they're paying multiple numbers of that. And there was a process by which we, for years we had like a, for every successive kid, you got more of a discount because of that. Like if you got five kids, what are you you supposed to do? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing. kids you love. Well, the other way that schools handle it is they raise some money and put it in a fund, scholarship-wise, and then they allow financial aid for need-based financial aid for those who can afford it. But when I came to High Point about six years ago, uh, we were able to handle about fifteen to twenty kids a year with about half off financial aid. For a lot of families, half off of a billion dollars doesn't help them get into, you know, to them, it seems like a billion dollars. So half off doesn't really matter. And if you look at, if you, if you sit out and you look at the cars pulling up on a school day, it's about 50, 50, nice SUV, clunky van. Yeah. Yeah. So since we were able to participate in the Wisconsin Parental Choice Program, uh, last year, 62 kids were here that were paying nothing. And their edu- their family income was shown at below 220% of the poverty rate. And so that's a tremendous difference in who attends our school. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, we've entered the special needs scholarship program so that we have some extra money from the state of Wisconsin to be able to help kids who have special needs. And that was another category of student that traditional Christian schools could never touch. When I was in, when I was, it was like 2006, I went here for a half a year to High Point School and my brother was in fourth grade and he had been here for four or five Five years and we the reason why we switch schools because we adopted my younger brother and he had a lot of learning disabilities and the the school just didn't have the like facilities needed mm-hmm. to help to help him so we had to take him to to public schools but i mean looking back now we're like we probably should have just just went here i mean the the foundational the foundational learning that we would have learned here would probably have made up for a lot of the, it would have probably evened out. But yeah, that was one thing I always wondered that, but that's just because there's not enough, you don't, there's not enough money to pay for that type of education. Yeah. No, we're not, we still can't serve every child. Uh, We, we tell people in advance what our options are and we, we do, we do serve, I think it was 17 students last year that had some identified special need. And then we have other students that don't have a, an IEP, but have learning challenges. And so we're working with those students as well. But anyway, I just think it's really exciting. And Part of the reason why uh, private Christian education is growing in this area is because the schools are almost all opting in to this program that provides free education for kids of poverty. Yeah. Yeah, I should, one other thing, our, our school, when I got here, had about 3% that would be identified as a minority of some type. Now it's 30%. And some of that is also because of this growth. So one one of the things to think about with this is like people, this is like, as I talk to African-American pastors and leaders, they're very, they're like, I remember I sitting down with um, Harold Rayford. I was like, look, you got to talk, you, we've got to talk about this schooling thing. He's like, he's like, Nick, I'm for public schools. Our black kids do not need money taken away from the public schools. And I was like, okay, just come and talk with the, at that point, Lizzie Smazel was a director of um, legislation. And so we, we just went to the Capitol building. He sat down with Lizzie for an hour and Lizzie just like went through this raw statistics that just nobody knows. And she, and it, they were just facts and like Harold just looks at these facts and he's just like, I have just been lied to like none of this stuff I thought is true. So like, for example, if we had 200 kids here and they were under the voucher program, right? Um, we would be producing 1.6 million in value for the government schools because they get to keep that other $8,000. Yeah. So let's say it's just 16,000. We get eight, they get eight. Yeah. 
we have 200 kids that we're educating at $8,000 per kid. They still get the other eight. So the public school really has 1.6 million more dollars because they get that money and they're not educating anybody. And so like they, the, the public school or, the, or that is the government school is quote doing better. But the reality here is, is that none of that matters. Kids are getting as good or better educations in the others, other schools. And all of these black and brown kids, just like these beige kids can access it through a choice program. But what should happen is we should move more in the direction of justice where money just goes with kids, period, full stop. That whatever is levied for a kid goes with that kid. And if, if the kid comes here, then we get... $14,000. And if they go to the Madison school district, they get $14,000 and that's just it. And when that happens, what would happen is just a thousand flowers can bloom. You could have like hundreds of different, even small, even in home educational institutions with like five students and one teacher. And like, that would be good. Kids can get what they, so parents can say, look, like my kid, I have a kid who's like agoraphobic. Like they're just terrified to be in big spaces. Well, you're not sending that kid to Memorial high school. Right. So you can say, Hey, well, maybe at a smaller Christian school, they'll be fine. Or maybe uh, in a, um, or, right. Or maybe you've got one teacher who's like just fantastic. And she just has a website where like I teach seventh and eighth grade. I take eight students a year. You have to apply to get in. I teach out of my home. Here are the things. And like the money just goes to her and she, and she teaches out in the park one day and she drives over to devil's lake one day and they do science like in the water. And, and that's what you choose for your kid. And right now you just can't do that. And there is no educationally viable reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. And what it also does is it, it keeps people from creating the jobs they want to do. Like there's a lot of people who would teach if they could teach that way. Yeah. But they can't teach that way. Right. And so they don't go into education. And they're not going to go teach in, in a way right. that they don't think is the right way to teach. Right. So they're going to go do something else. Freedom. And they could be fantastic educators and help a lot of kids. Right. One, one option that, that we haven't talked about and probably won't in the series a bunch, but it's like, it's my ideal option, which I, well, I don't know if I'll ever have enough money for this. But I think my ideal option for education is finding... When I think about like Alexander the Great. Um, he was taught by Arist was it Aristotle. Aristotle. Yeah. Aristotle. And just, I, I was well, hire tutor for your yeah, just hire tutors per kid. And I think that would be so fantastic because you get somebody that would be directly. And if the money did follow the kid, yeah. you could potentially put it towards that and put a little bit extra money towards somebody. That was always. I mean, that was education for four, five, six, seven, twelve thousand years. But, but yeah, it was it was like your parents could pay for. Right. Okay. I want to do a couple other positives and negatives for private schooling. One is um, that in most urban areas, the schools are smaller, really does matter for a lot of kids. A lot of kids do thrive in a smaller context. And I don't just mean the classroom is smaller, the whole institution, everything in it's smaller. Right. Which also means parents like have like they have some kind of sway. Like if a parent has an issue, they can actually be heard. The principal is likely to know their name. Right. The principal's likely to already know their kid. There does happen to be one of my bigger issues with smaller schools. There happens to be there more politics, though, like more, mm-hmm. more power politics, especially. And I'm I know this isn't about like right. sports one and person things. can make a bigger. Stink. Yes. And and what right. and like in somebody who has it, it's a lot of is if you have a small school with a lot of people teaching and in charge who have a lot of integrity, then I think it's going to be great. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of situations you don't. And I mean, probably cause I'm That's only what being at full enrollment. Right. Like the, our schools are right now is so helpful because now if a parent's like, look, I'm going to pull my kid right out of the school and they're being unreasonable. Then you can be like, listen, we're really going to miss you. Yeah. 
We wanted to educate your kids so much, but we're going to, you know, it's kind of like, look, if you want to walk, you can, um, you know, but, but like when the school is at 60% enrollment and you can barely pay, barely pay the bills, then the temptations there are much different. Yeah. Right. So, but that, that's the other side of this, right? So like one side of it is some kids thrive in a smaller school. The opposite side of that is, is that if you put your kid in kindergarten, those are the kids your kid is going to be with until they graduate eighth grade. There's no way to escape the fourth grade teacher. Whoever the fourth grade teacher is, is who you're going to get. And you're going to be with those kids until you get out. And that has some liabilities. It has some real positives. And it has some liabilities. It slows the dating down. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to date their sister, you know, that they've been with for a long time. Um, yeah. But I, I would argue from the inside the school perspective, the small school really matters to the teachers and the faculty because we do know all the kids. Yeah. And so the sixth grade teacher might not know the name of the third grade student yet, but she knows that face. Mm -hmm. She knows that kid belongs and she knows who that kid belongs to. And by the time the, the third grade student gets to the middle school, they already know all those teachers. They've been in the hallway with them. They've, yeah. they've been up to their classroom with the book buddies or whatever the they've things are. They've heard some are. of their jokes already. They, they already know the jokes yeah. they're going to tell. They've heard what the other kids will say about them. I mean, yeah. so there is some, a community is really nice to have. Yeah. Um, you know, when yeah. I first arrived at this school and a whole new group of People, uh, I have to confess that all the girls were sweetheart and all the boys were bud. Now it's a lot different. I know who they are and I know who their parents are. And and that really makes a difference in an edu and, and even very large schools try to fix this by having houses mm -hmm. or sub-communities within the large school mm -hmm. because that's that's really important. Uh, I do think that that ideal of one-to-one -one is the best. Yeah. Uh, you know, and when we have 25 kids in a class, I always... In the back of my mind, I'm thinking Jesus chose 12, mm -hmm. you know, and he's probably a pretty good teacher. Yeah. <laughs> would, would that be a good number? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of this does come down to economic viability, right? Like the reason we don't do one-on-one -on -one is because it's too expensive. Yeah. So there's a couple other things. One is content freedom, right? Like there's a big argument about like, you know, critical race theory in schools and not. And like as a school, we can just be like, okay, listen. We're not going to teach like the radical versions of critical race theory, but Hey, maybe there's some, like, maybe we need more black leaders in our curriculum. Maybe we need a, maybe we need a unit on black excellence in sixth grade and we could just make those decisions and or we don't, even we don't have to be teaching critical race theory as a, as a, as, as a theory, as because a theory that's what in eighth grade, in, let's say as part grade, of an apologetics right. curriculum, what right. we do on this podcast where it's like, if, if you, if you and I never, ever read any other books outside of just Christian books, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to talk about 90% of things that we talk about because we're talking about Christianity and then how it relates mm -hmm. to the world that we live in or how it opposes yeah. the world that we live yeah, in. Yeah, and, 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 and High Point Christian School, I know our seventh and eighth graders, you hear them like, like a, I, I'm at graduation most years and, and they mostly talk about those last couple of years because they're the most memorable. They're also going through adolescence, so they're really wrapped up in them, but they really talk about the teachers and the conversations that they have and the issues that they struggle with and so on. And I'm not sure, like none of our teachers could you put up as like nationally national scholars of anything, but they can engage in critical thinking. They've read a bunch of books. They're way ahead of the students and they help, they help those students get there. So that content freedom is big. I think there's also methodological freedom. There, there are some like DPI kind of regulatory things that I think we have to think about. And there's just good social science research that both the public schools or the government schools and our schools are going to use. But there's also that opportunity to just be like, look, we don't believe in that. 
We don't believe that's what a human being is. Like we were talking about the grammar stage and memorization and how we focus more on things like phonics than is fashionable as some other schools, right? Like, and like the quote, new math that pe- like, my, like I told you another one, my, my kids are like, okay, they're like, don't pay attention to anything they teach you about math. Just look at the problem and how it's solved and teach yourself math. Like they bypass this, like actually really poor way of teaching math that, that, that is pursued for reasons of diversity which is probably good motivation, but probably not a great idea Be- because it, it takes, it takes the second tier of what human beings are, our our cross group diversity, and it makes it more primary than what we all share, which is the human functioning of development that's universal for everyone in an inappropriate way. And so, so what we can do at the schools, we can say was like, look, we just don't, we don't agree with that. Yeah. And so we can change methodology. Or you can agree with, a, with, with an idea that, that, that they have, but, the private school has the option of teaching it in a different way. Like even like teaching things in ways that are different, yeah. even doing more like hands-on or things yeah. out in the community or whatever it ends up. Yeah. Being. And there's probably even like, I mean, I'm not sure it's like health codes or whatever, but like, it's probably easier for us to like bring in a lizard and like, I mean, oh, just like yeah. some like really kind yeah. of simple things are like, if we right. want to do like a mushroom garden or something right. outside, like it's pretty easy to just do mushroom garden with pastor yeah. Nick at a place like ours. Whereas like getting permissions and yeah. stuff like that can be more structured. Different. Which I feel like back when I was like early two thousands, I don't, I didn't feel like the government schools were super strict. Like I remember one time my first grade mm-hmm. teacher brought us all the students to her compost pile, which was like her house was like down the street across the way. And I lived mm-hmm. in like a small town, Sauk Prairie. And we just went up there and like we did compost pile i remember that and I, there was no like i don't it didn't feel like this big deal it was just like yep we're going and we she like made us clean up our garbage and all that stuff like it, it was good <laughs> let me let me mention one other hybrid private school christian school option that's in the madison area and that's oh, Karis, Cl- classical christian classical Karis academy i forget yeah. the exact name yeah oh and we should have some way you we should, should have monty you should see on if the you can get monty better on that yeah. but he but this it's a it's a brand it's across the country and what it allows for families that have the ability to be home with their kids three days a week that's what they are and two days a week they're at school at Karis or I have it backwards. Maybe it's I three think it's days backwards. At, I think it's three to three, the other three to two. Yeah. Okay. And so they get some of the advantages of being with a cohort of kids doing things together. And, but they also have a lot of teaching that happens in the home through the family. Okay. And uh, I'm not trying to say yeah. that's the only way. It certainly would be nice if none of those kids went there and they all wanted to be at my school, but I think it's a great option and there's great leadership. Uh, Monty is a member of uh, high point community as well. And uh, he actually sits on our governance board at our school. And he was a humanities teacher at ALCS. So he was a, he was like basically a social studies teacher for a long time at ALCS. Yeah. He went there K 12, I think as a child. Yeah. And then he went and was like headmaster of a school upstate for a little bit. And then he came back and he's doing Karis now. So he didn't start Karis. He's like. He came back to Madison to start a classical school. Right. And it, then Car- Karis is a classical school. It's and like, already existed. It's like, like, a like a franchise or something, like, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And no, it existed, but it had struggled a little bit. And I think. And it's nationwide. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I know this, there's one in Rockford. I know there's places, other places that there are. Because that's what John is thinking about doing. And John, he's, John Sagatowski. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think that's a great option. I mean, yeah. like, because homeschooling is difficult. It's, yeah. diff- it's difficult in a bunch of ways. We'll talk about it in another podcast. Yeah. But I think that what Karis does, and, and so like we were in something called classical conversations, which was one day a week, you were in cohort with a tutor. And then you were also, but then you were like lining up all the stuff you were going to do this week, what assignments you had, what you were going to do. 
It's, but it also gave you that social interaction and also the ability to create debate and those sorts of things. And then you'd go homeschool the rest of the week. Karis does it three days, two okay. days. I think and so there's right. more, there's more input from the tutors. And of course, of course you pay more too. Yeah. Right. So, okay. I want to say one more thing about extracurriculars. Um, there was, there's a bunch of talk not too long ago about Memorial high school and how they had restructured their cross country girls program to, instead of being like a state contender to just get as many girls running track as possible. We talked about this in one of our podcasts, right? About sports, yeah. about yeah. how sports are supposed to be. Everybody plays, yeah. not some people are semi pro right. right now, right yeah. now. And uh, for like high school age people. Yeah. Right. And so for most government schools, because they're really large communities and because there's inner school rivalries and all those kind of things, yeah. but you basically get these students who are essentially athletic semi pros and they're actually doing things that are going to be detrimental to their bodies over the long run. They're going to have bad knees and bad shoulders. It's really not good for them physically. And then you get a bunch of other kids that just don't get to play at high point, like at high point Christian school, you know, you get your class of like 24 students. You're trying to field two teams cause you're doing boys and girls. So when girls basketball comes around, like basically all the girls play. Yeah. And so it's a great opportunity for like kids that wouldn't play sports yeah. to get their feet wet, to play sports. And like, so that one kid who's like, she's not that tall. She's not that fast, but like, look, you need a third sub. Yeah. You just literally have to have somebody who can slide their feet, right. box out a little, maybe do something good. Isn't like extremely detrimental to the team. Like right. somebody who can just right. play competently. Yeah. For a and lot, for some of those girls and, and boys, they'll just get on the team because it's the thing everybody's doing after school. They're going to hang out with their friends. Right. There's a lot. I mean, I co I've coached some of the teams and there's some, especially the girls teams. There are some, well, I don't have a lot of access to the boys teams because I just hadn't coached boys, but the, on the girls teams, you've got two or three girls who are literally at, sometimes it's as much as half the team who are really just there to be with everybody else, but they're doing these physical activities together and sports teach kids a lot of things. And so like kids who would never be on the Memorial team who would, who would wash out of sports really, really early are playing through eighth grade. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, and, and I think your argument in the earlier podcast was that schools like government, like, the government schools they're a service to us and they're they they're supposed well they're supposed to be a service to us and they're supposed to be a service to our children and so creating a situation where like certain kids get to play this sport and certain kids don't it doesn't incentivize healthy lifestyle it doesn't it, it only incentivizes right. healthy lifestyle for the people who it looks like is worth being healthy like that right. something's going to pay off in the end they're going to make like 50 million dollars because they're right. healthy and, that, and, and people don't stop to say what is worth specializing in at this stage right right like the idea that a kid would specialize in basketball yeah. is probably preposterous yeah you know what i mean because 99 percent of the kids they end up as like used car salesmen like they don't because yeah. they, they go it, to college well, and they don't pay attention to anything because well, they got everybody telling them that they're going to be the next basketball jordan right? and then they seriously i've watched these it's kids. way worse than 99 percent yeah it's 99.99997 yeah. Yeah, yeah you get one kid that goes to the league and you're like oh i went or i was you know i was in a a you turn with and them, so I okay. have a chance. Yeah, and, right. They, they make it to the NBA, and they're not right. even that good. They're not even that good. They last for like three years, and then they're in the D, D League, and then they're in Germany. Right, and, and, and that, most of those yeah. kids in less than three years are bankrupt. Right. Yes. And, and now, yeah. Right. Unless you're Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson was really smart. He he made a Reebok uh, give him like $50 million when he was like 55. So he's still waiting on that money because oh, he really? knew he would just waste it all. So, but yeah, so that's okay. Uh, that's, a couple of yeah. drawbacks really quick. Okay. Yeah. Um, one is that classes are small and you can't get away from people. We talked about that a little bit already. Um, you're with the, stuck with the same 16 to 32 kids, right? Two, if a school has a bad teacher, you can't avoid that teacher. 
because most of these schools only have one class per grade. And if that's the case and you really don't like the fourth grade teacher, you got to pull your kid out of school for that year or something like that. That's also one of the reasons why we don't keep bad teachers, though. Very few of our schools have truly bad teachers. We have some teachers that are better than other teachers. Like that's always going to be the case. But if you have a truly bad teacher, it'll close your school because you'll lose eight kids that year and then they're gone for the rest of the years and you lose $300,000 of revenue and you just close. So when we took over ALCS, for example, the first thing we did is we audited every teacher and we let five of them go because that we realized that's what was affecting their school. Right. And then um, third is teacher turnover is pretty high. Private Christian schools just don't have the money to make attractive offers to new teachers. And that leads to a high ratio of female teachers as well. So High Point Christian School, for example, has one male teacher. And having so few male teachers um, is you know, it has its effects on, students especially probably. on male students. How, what's the average income at a High Point School for? Like salary-wise? Salary-wise, yeah. Do you know what it is? The, the starting salary this year was uh, 31169 which is abysmal. Very good health care benefits. Yeah. And so what is it? So if you're a public? woman and your husband makes decent money, right? Yeah. But he's in sales or something. It's not that unattractive because yeah. there's some flexibility. Your kids are going to get to go through the school. Yeah. Right. But if you're like a guy and you're like, look, I have to have a family leading income. Yeah. It's, now, it's not attractive. If you're a starting teacher at Madison Metropolitan School District last year, I think the number was about 48. Yeah. So it's a gap. Yeah, it's a big gap. Yeah. yeah and we're working at that. We have been raising uh, the salaries as we've been able to do as yeah. our enrollments have grown. But that's sad to say that we're up to 31 having raised it. Right. right. But yeah. you can see how like this is an issue of justice. Yeah. Right. Like these are these are employees that live in our society. Yeah. These are people who are teaching students. Right. These are people who are doing the same work as teachers at public schools are doing. They have in many cases very similar educations. Right. Um, and yet they're being paid so much less. And if this was a gender pay gap, we'd all be up in arms about it. Which it kind of well, is, because yeah, you said that well, most of the people are right, right. right. It is it, it is it does increase so, the gender pay gap. So having true. said all of that about turnover, this year we have two new teachers, and the reason for the turnover is the teachers preceding them both had a child and decided to stay out for a year. Yeah. So um, we just celebrated the second retirement of a teacher uh, at our Mount Horeb campus. She started at Matt Middleton Baptist Christian School when it was in its early stages, and she worked here through, uh, I think it was her 36th year, and retired. Wow took a couple years off and when we planted Mount Horeb, she came back and worked for three more. Right. So we have, and, and that's not that unusual. Yeah. Uh, Diane Cook that you mentioned is still working with Impact Christian Schools. I have yeah. a meeting with her after this podcast there recording. So, I mean, we have people that have played the long game. Yeah. Um, uh, but the other things that Nick said is correct. Yeah. Uh, a very small number of male teachers right. over the time. Right. Um, and so imagine now trying to recruit minority teachers. Yeah. Right. You're just trying like to. Like if you're an African American yeah. man, let's yeah. say, and you got grades to go to college, you go to yeah. University of Illinois, you get an education degree, right? And now right. you're coming out, you're the first college graduate in your family for three generations. Right. And you, and you, but you're a believer, like you get saved. You sing like a gospel choir, right? <laughs> you come, you come, and you're like, "Oh, High Point Christian School, right?" Yeah. Uh, I should interview with them, and then we say, "Yeah, we can offer you thirty one thousand dollars." And then yeah. you go to the metro, and they're like, "We," and they're desperate to get you too, right? And they'll pay you forty eight. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, what do you think you're going to do? 48 with state benefits and like that you get. Well, and the other part of that hard Pension. thing is do yeah. the math. Work at McDonald's at $15 an hour. And what is that? It's about $30,000 a year. Yeah. So, I mean, we're really not yet at the place yeah. where we're offering. But so the reason that our teachers are taking these wages is they want this career. Yeah. They want right. to work with kids in yeah. a Christian environment in a small yeah. school yeah. and uh, they're excited about it. Yeah. But, but I'm not defending the wages. It's yes, a, you can't. Not, but I, th- I think that's, what can you do I think that's the reason why, like, if you're a person, you're listening to this, obviously anybody listening is going to be a person, right? Who, who can comprehend it. But like, this is an issue of political significance relative to human justice, mm-hmm. that the educational system is unjust in many ways. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that is ex- exacerbated through the governmental monopoly system mm-hmm. is that it st- it doesn't allow other people who are doing the same work yeah. to receive the same pay. Right. Just very straightforward. And there just yeah. isn't funding equity. And that's an issue of justice, right. especially when every every advantage that you can speak of relative to schooling mm-hmm. producing education right. the private schools do as well or better i would say i was going to say i would for be, much less money yeah I, I would be totally fine with 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 that if with the that salary um starting level if there was no government schools at all and it was just because people weren't coming to the school that would make sense but because we know that there's thousands and thousands of dollars that are coming from your students that are going to these other schools that are right. giving the starting salary that's playing into why they have a higher starting salary. Right. It's, 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 it's the classic it makes no sense. It's a le- classic economic problem of third yeah. payer. Any, anything in which there is a third party that pays yeah. the price between the producer and the consumer, the price skyrockets. Yeah. Right. Medicine. Right. Education. Right. Like, I mean, just look at the economy, right. all the stuff that's like blowing out in front of inflation. Yeah. It's so it's imagine like you could go to Culver's or Chick-fil-A, right? right? And right. but instead of costing the same, somebody's gonna give you six dollars yeah. if you go to Chick-fil-A. Right. Right? Who's gonna go to Culver's? Yeah. Well, that's why people don't like the middleman. That nobody likes the middleman because it's just an extra service that you have to pay for. That's yeah. that, that's why that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, they don't offer. In, in this case, the, the middleman is the administrative wing yeah. of education. Right. And in the public system, they argue that those people offer a lot of value. But the problem is, is that here we are as the private system, and we right. demonstrate empirically right. that they do not. Right. Yeah, and even if they do offer value, they don't offer as even close to as much value as the teachers here do. Yeah, for way this gets a little sensitive in yeah. ways people don't want to talk about because yeah. a number of those administrative jobs in the quote central offices are really good jobs. They pay really well, and they are disproportionately inhabited by minority people. And so you're talking about so taking really good jobs stuff, away from yeah. black people. Yeah. And that's not cool. Yeah. Except for that you want to take those jobs away from them from the government and give it back to people like them yeah, in the Yeah, but they wouldn't sector. make $126,000 a year. What would, happen is, what would happen is every teacher would make 54. But yeah, maybe. And that's what, so there would be democratization yeah. of salaries and then more money would be spent but in the classroom. They, if they're really good at teaching and a lot more people heard about that and came to the school then maybe they'd make a hundred like some if, if in, they in were, theory there could be if you, there could be economic models but there would have to be yeah. even more freedom for that yeah I think we have to give Chuck the last word he probably yeah. has to go do his Sorry. job <laughs> well I'm, I just appreciate the opportunity for the conversation yeah. I really
really don't feel like any school fits all. Yeah. Uh, I know that in the Milwaukee market that has had the choice program since 1991, they've kind of reached a plateau with about 30,000 kids that have opted out of the public government school system to the private uh, choice system. Mm -hmm. And the schools there have had enough time to tool up and they have space and they have ability to have more students. But the families who are willing to have their kids in a Christian school mm-hmm. or in Milwaukee, a Jewish school or a Muslim school, because they have those options, yeah. uh, is a smaller number than the whole. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I don't think you'll ever see a majority of parents deciding that private school is the best option for their kid. Depends yeah. on their politics. Especially depends on where they live. But mm-hmm. especially within the realm of funding and equity, right? Yeah, if right. the funding really <clears throat> was equitable, and that then, one might break down. Yeah. And, you know, there were bills that were passed in both the conservative Senate and Assembly at Wisconsin uh, that were vetoed at the governor's office last year that would have, for example, eliminated the... Um, the income limits for the choice families. So it could have been for anybody. Uh, That would be helpful. There's other rules on which grades you can enter a private school in Mm -hmm. the choice program. I'd love to see disappear. I don't, I think they were created to avoid a mass exodus of the public school that didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's time for those things to go away. So I could think of a lot of political things I'd like to see happen in a different environment. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But uh, I've, I'm grateful for this chance to have just been part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, well, we are grateful for you coming and joining us. Um, thanks so much. And I think so. Yeah. The next podcast, we're going to talk about um, homeschooling and that'll be the, the to end this little series on education. Um, well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on the show. Um, if you're listening to this and you like it, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five star rating and leave us a review. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.